I'm Bob Bodine, and I'm privileged to be one of the elders here. And we're going to pour out our praise to the Lord this morning as we read from 1 Peter. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to 1 Peter. We'll be reading the first chapter in its entirety. So uh, if you're in the New Testament, you got Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. So uh, here we go. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by 
your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Amen. So as you notice, we're jumping in to a new sermon series, and, and as has been our tradition, we're, uh, we're focusing really on, on trying to get through the, the whole book in a matter of the next, next five weeks, so we've, we've parsed out a, a chapter at a time. Um, but before that, we also have to get into some of the background, and I'm going to do it in a unique way. So part of my normal rhythm throughout the week is I have a friend of mine here at the church, and we, we tend to go to the gym, and we work out at lunchtime. So that's our, our noon hour, basically, is our consistent time that we're, we're hitting the gym, and, and it's been fun. We have a good time uh, most of the time, I would say. Uh, but in the process of that, you know, most, most gyms, I think, have, have TVs all over the gym just as a way to distract you from the pain that you're enduring, I guess. But so, so there's news on a couple of channels and there's, there's um, you know, sports on a couple of channels, just trying to meet everyone's needs. But notoriously, on a few of the, the, um, the TVs, there's always a soap opera, right? Because it's the noon hour, right? That's where everybody gets a chance to look at Young and the Restless, or As the World Turns. I know you're going to judge me because I know the names of these things, but I literally, it's just from the gym. Like, I'm not watching them. But, um, you know, General Hospital, I mean, we're not at the gym that long, so honestly, I probably do know more than I should. But nonetheless, I'm just culturally relevant. Just help me out here. So, but in the process of those things, I just, you look at those, and, and there's, no, there's no audio, so you're not really hearing what's going on. But you're seeing all of these things, and even though you can't hear the conversation between the actors and actresses, you can just sense the drama, right? Like you get these faces where they're angry with one another, or somebody slaps someone else, or somebody storms out of the room, right? Just like they make their money on just manufacturing as much drama as possible. And I wonder how often we've felt that way. Maybe not as the world turns, but as the world churns. Like we're, we're, we're in that part where there's just drama after drama. It feels like often life senses itself as sort of this, this soap opera, but we don't even know if we're actors or if we even play a part. It's as though the sound's off and we're watching all of these things happening. And we're wondering what impact or effect it has on our daily life. And so many things seem to be taking place and happening outside of us that it's, it really is difficult to get our bearings. Maybe it's a, a personal challenge that we're navigating that we feel like all these things keep coming at us and it just feels like we can't really get our feet set and there's, it's more, more inconsistent than anything or, or the world around us. I mean, if you, you gaze at the news too long, fall into just the darkness of realizing that everything is going on around us and it feels so inconsistent and unpredictable. Peter's writing to people in that scenario. So trying to move them to remember 
and push them towards a constant in the midst of inconsistency. <laughs> to, to really helping them, followers, grab on to the only thing that is worth grabbing on to. And, and really, in the midst of that, what it does is it affects not only their emotions of what they're going through, it doesn't make the situation any easier, but it gives them perspective and understanding as to what the Lord is going to do and is doing, and what's really worth hanging on to. So it's, it's a sense of reliability in a world that is completely <coughs> falling apart as the world churns. What, what do you hold on to is the, the predominant question that Peter faces. So background a little bit. I mean, if we've read the New Testament, we get a bit of a story of the author. Peter writes this book, and Peter has a, a long and somewhat illustrious histories. He's a bit infamous among the apostles, is he not? He's one of the guys where Jesus is being, you know, at the court, and they're accusing him of all these things, and people point to him and say, hey, aren't you his follower? He's like, no, not me. I've got nothing to do with this guy. Like, in the heat of the moment, he, he pulls away and, and wonders if it's worth really laying down his life for the Savior, for Christ, who's given him so much. And in that moment, just the, the absolute pressure of society wins over and above his face. But that's not the end of his story, is it? As the world churns, right? There's more to it than that. And so there's this restoration that Jesus gives to Peter. And, and even before that, you have, you have Peter and, and, and Jesus in the garden, and, and Peter's ready to take on the entire Roman garden, cutting off people's ears. And I mean, the dude's all over the map. If he knows anything, he knows grace. And so you would anticipate that in the midst of the first epistle that he writes, and he's writing to people who are navigating the most tremendous of sufferings, Many of them are losing their lives solely because they place their faith in Christ. Persecution has moved the church to be nomadic. It used to be a place that you would go to meet with God. Jesus shows up, the entire temple's destroyed. Now you get the sense, even Pentecost, right, that, that Jesus is now that place that the Holy Spirit resides in us and that no matter where we are, the reliability and consistency of the grace of Jesus Christ goes with us wherever we go. And so persecution happens, and, and all of a sudden the church is dispersed all over the place. And yet the suffering doesn't stop. Even though the church is nomadic, it seems as though as the gospel goes forth, there are two things that happen. People buy in and believe wholeheartedly in the truth of who Jesus is. And other people want to fight against it tooth and nail. It's too upsetting to the way that they do life or for whatever notorious reasons the church remains persecuted and so there's this constant influx of challenge and assault to the Christian faith where the, the real challenge for these believers that the Bible tells us is the diaspora, those around modern day Turkey, find themselves just struggling. The world continues to grow difficult and the question that they faith is question that they face is, is faith worth it? How do I even navigate the uncertainties of life and what does it look like to live where I plant my flag, I get my bearing in the only constant that exists and that is more reliable than anything else around me? Grace. 
That's really the theme of the entire book of 1 Peter. Grace. Find it on every chapter of this book. It comes up as a central theme. But grace for what? Grace to live differently. Now we're moving into meddling a bit in the context of our lives because grace is a great concept where we realize that we've been given this undeserved gift, this unmerited favor, this love that we couldn't earn or somehow allow God to, to, to see us and say, oh yeah, because of who they are, I'm going to give them grace. No, grace is a gift from God solely by his love and compassion and passion for people. But in the process of that grace, grace does something. Grace changes things. Grace shifts not only what I think, but how I live it. It begins to rewire and, and reconstruct even the infrastructure that I put in place. And you know what it does? It exposes actually what I'm putting my hope in. Because if we know anything, we know that the world is churning. There's nothing constant. We look at the world and if a pandemic has taught us anything, what has it taught us? Everything can change in a heart. In a moment, our lives, whether globally, universally, or personally, can change in an instant. And yet, if our hope and faith is in specific outcomes of specific circumstances, our disappointment with God grows because those outcomes don't happen. So this is really moving to the place of, of understanding for followers who are suffering what it means to live and root themselves and build their lives on the only thing that's constant, the grace of Jesus Christ, as it rolls itself out in his passionate pursuit of us and the reliability of his word, in all of those things, as the world churns, God doesn't. He is not off his throne. He's not confused about the events that are transpiring. He's drawing people to burn away these places of false hope to bring them to that place of the reliability and the trust that the only thing worth trusting is God himself. And then what that does is begin to fan the affections for those who were followers of Christ. And then you know what else it does? It amplifies their witness. It communicates to the world that those who are followers of Christ who have suffered in great degrees and even being martyred and losing their life, of which Peter will be one, the most startling reality of what takes place as Peter writes these epistles to, to, to followers who are suffering. He's also becoming, or he will become, one of the martyrs of the church. You know what a unique kind of telltale story that happens in the context of these things that we'll see next? He is one of the ones that promotes and communicates to the very end that you should submit your lives to the ones who are in authority over you. He even talks about the government. And in the process of doing that, you know what happens? The very governor that he's preaching should be that, that which he submits to is actually the one that kills him. He actually loses his life in submission and following the call and obedience to Jesus Christ because he knows that it's worth following Christ at all costs. Grace, to live differently, is the theme of the epistle of 1 Peter. Let's look at a couple of components of it, because he breaks it up into to three different sections here. So he identifies himself in the first part, First uh, Peter 1, verses 1 through 3, and he tells us that, that, that it, he's communicating to those who were suffering and those who were wrestling with those things and, and, and to the dispersion. So all of these people that have, have 
been moved out, that the church has now become nomadic because of persecution, and that they're spread out all over the place, but God still has a word for them, even though their lives have been disrupted. Praise the Lord. Because I think that that's equally significant for you and me. Now, the disruption that you might be experiencing or have experienced, it's probably not, at least in our culture, at least for now, hasn't been persecution. But your life has been disrupted. Numerous times. Through the context of your story and dream, and there are more disruptions to come. And that's hard to say an amen to that. But it's true. There are things that are consistently churning underneath the surface. So in the process of that, Peter's writing to a followers of Christ whose lives have been so disrupted that they need their bearings, they need to get their bearings on the only thing that's constant. The grace of Jesus Christ. The reliability of his word. And so what he tells them in the beginning of these verses is that, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, he describes them, the sanctification of the Spirit and obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he already starts it off by communicating that the significance of what God is getting them towards, what, what Peter is communicating to them, is that grace and peace are essential. Grace has granted us a living hope. That's where he's moving in the next portion of this text, is that grace, the grace of Jesus Christ, the unmerited love, pursuit, passion of God himself has afforded to us through faith in Jesus Christ, without anything that we've done to merit God's favor or love, has been given to us in abundance. And it's granted us a hope that's alive. Look what he says in these next few verses. Blessed be the God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, whose by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, and here it is, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, though it is tested by fire, may, found, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does he tell us? He tells us that grace has, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, but he, he connects it with the significant work of Christ and how reliable that is to not only change our destination, but to change how, how we determine our own identity. He's moved us away from just saying, oh, let's hope that things get better in eternity. He communicates to us that the suffering that believers walk through in the context of their life is for the purpose of burning away false hope. That, that often we find ourselves in competing faiths. Even though we would suggest that we have sole faith in our, 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 the sovereign work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the only one that can take care of all things, and, and that's our confession. Our emotions and our, our lives tend to marry themselves with actually becoming to the place where we realize that our faith is in specific outcomes. We have things that we want, desires that we have, and, and the reason why those things get burned away, why is God doing those things? For the purpose of realizing that the only source worthy of our affections is Christ alone. He's guaranteed a protected future is what he tells us. That we're born again to a living hope. Knowing suffering and joy can coexist. 
that those things can walk simultaneously in the context of our lives, that that's a reality of how we live our lives, is that we know also that, that suffering is a part of our journey and what we experience, but, but it also coexists with the reality of the promise of joy that God gives his people. That it's not just people going through intense suffering, but what intense suffering really is, is it moves us to an incredible opportunity. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that intense suffering actually cultivates a reality of intentional and transformative opportunities. The opportunity to communicate about the worthiness of worshiping the God of the universe who's in control of all things so that we don't worship the world around us. I think he, he moves us in that direction to burn away false hope that we can't trust the things around us. We can't trust what might or might not happen, but we can trust the significance of who Jesus is. And then he, he unites it with a, a sense of, of an, an Old Testament reality. So he calls them elect exiles, which is giving us an indication that he's drawing us back to the fact that God knows how to deal well with those who are in exile. When we talk about exile, what we're talking about is those who are away from their homeland, whether it's through punishment or whether it's through persecution, whatever might be taking place, they're not in a place that's familiar to them. And what he tells them, this place isn't your home. So the world, for a follower of Christ, is always going to feel like it's not your home. That's kind of the point. And in the process of those things, what he does is he unites us with the, the, the unfolding story of God. He's uniting us with the significance of what God has done in the Old Testament and what God is going to do in the future. Here's what he says. You know the story of Moses. Moses feeling incapable of being able to be a, a leader used by God, fearful of his inability to speak, is marshaled and used by God to take on the most powerful man in the known world and communicate the truth of God's word. process of that, through all of these plagues, Moses leads an entire nation out of Egypt and finds himself at a, a crux, a point where he's got the Red Sea before him and an army behind him. He has no resources, no options in and of himself to save the very people he's been called to lead out. So he stands knowing that unless God moves, there are no options. And what happens? God moves. The Red Sea's parted. The nation of Israel's moved through the Red Sea and gone to the other side. And the, the, the warring faction, the nation of Egypt, is, is consumed by the water. You are a part of that family because you serve the God who can part the Red Sea. David stands on the battlefield against Goliath, this enormous Philistine that, based on his resources, there would be no way that he would win. Odds are stacked against him. All the armies of the nation of Israel are fearful to even move forward and take on the giant. David, armed with the truth of God's word and his promises, finds victory in the battlefield because God always keeps his promises because that's what God does. That's who God is. You serve that same God. Then when it seems unbelievable and insurmountable and impossible for anything to be different than what you experience and you find yourself stuck 
between two worlds, a, a Red Sea or a giant or, or even a fiery furnace where there's, there's three guys just trying to love the Lord as best they can in exile and they're thrown into a fiery furnace and they're not burned up because they're protected and preserved by the God of the universe. You serve that same God. And because you serve that same God, the promises of God are more reliable than the lies of the world. And so where are our affections? First Peter, the apostle himself, is communicating and saying, look, I've been there. I know what it's like to cave under the pressure that the world offers me and deny the very Savior that loved me beyond what I could imagine. I know what it feels like to give up and get in. I know what it feels like to throw in the towel. You don't want to go there. It is so much better to follow and find yourself enjoying the affections of Christ because he is the only one that is reliable because he is the God who has always kept his promises. God, hi, God knows how to deal with people in exile. God's great loving refugees and people who don't fit in. This book is a book for outsiders who said, look, I'm trying to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want him to have every aspect of my life, but things are coming at me that I can't deal with. Amen. You're right. You can't. You don't have, I don't have the resources to handle life's problems. Thank God. There's a Savior who does. He's at work in innumerable ways, drawing us to a place of allowing our affections to be determined by him alone that he is the author and perfecter of our faith jesus knows suffering jesus willingly jumps into suffering for the salvation of souls you are a part of a family and been guaranteed an inheritance that is guarded for you by faith you will experience a place that you can call home you will through faith in Christ, 100% guaranteed. But it is not in this world. Never will be. That the desire to find hope and satisfaction in this world apart from the perfect plan of God is impossible. So when he moves these followers away from realizing that, that grace is the place where they, they're granted this living hope, he moves them to a, a realization that is also granted them the ability to live holy. Grace has given them the strength to live holy. So here's a significant component of how we begin to gauge where our faith and trust is at is when we find the work that Jesus is doing. And if any of you know people that have walked through tremendous challenges in their life and find themselves worshiping the Lord, I know that it's an encouragement to you. Why? Because we realize that, that they've placed their hope and trust in the fullness and the work of Jesus himself. And he grants them the ability to live differently. It doesn't mean that the world doesn't turn. It doesn't mean that the world doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that we're not wounded. It means in the midst of our journey, what, what is being burned away is false hope. And what's being grown is our witness. Jesus matters, period. That's the heart cry of Followers who are suffering. Jesus is all I need and grants them strength to live holy lives. Be holy for I am holy, the Bible tells us. And so he tells us in verse 13 to prepare our minds for action. 
You know, the interesting part of this whole conversation is that he's communicating to followers of Christ and those who are living in the midst of a very difficult time and, and, and suffering is, is on the cusp every day. When they wake up, they realize it's a, it's a reality that they've experienced. He says, be prepared. How often does suffering catch us by surprise? Almost all the time. I think what the, the word is communicating to us, what Peter's communicating to, to followers who are suffering is that very thing. Be, be prepared. It's coming. God has a plan, and it ends with the fact that he will receive glory and that this world is not going to be a place where everything is awesome. It's that our relationship with God is moving us into a, on a totally different type of world where our home is not here but in heaven. So he tells us this is how you be prepared to prepare, or this is how you prepare your mind. Sober-minded, so thinking clearly through the lenses of God's word, how you think accurately about the things around you. Set your hope, so this is really, the, this is the planting flag moment. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, don't live like the world lives, he says. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as you were called to be holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you call on the Father who judges impartially according to each other's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout your time of exile. Here he's communicating to us is that what we need to value most of all is God's assessment of things, not anyone else's. That as he functions in the context of this world and even in your own life, the very things that we're hanging on to that we would say, well, this is God's provision, and if I lose it, God doesn't provide, then what we've made it is something that is a God and not God himself. Because what we need is just more of the work of God and his transcendent power that's at work in each of our lives in the most amazing of ways. We are united with a God who works and churns and brings his people to a place where they find Hope and trust in his promises alone. And what has he promised us in this text already? Living hope. Secured in heaven for you. Guaranteed through faith. Like he has got your eternity secure. And because of that, it affects how we live now. And so he moves through living holy and realizing that God has granted us the strength through a relationship with him to live holy. But I want to just finish with verses 22 through 25. And this is really critical. So let me see if I can draw out an example or at least ask you a question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but answer it in your If you answer it out loud, I'm okay with that. But when you go through difficult time and you have faced suffering, how frequently do you find yourself blaming people around you for it? How about other followers? The church, something's happening in the context of the church that is a source of struggle for you? How often do we turn to others as the reasons why our lives are hard? All the time. Right? And when we suffer, we look for answers to the suffering. And in the process of that, our normal fleshly reality is to move to the place where what ends up happening is the very relationships that God has given us become the very thing that begins to be fractured. And so the very first place that, God, that Peter goes to these <clears throat> saints who are suffering is to prevent them from imploding 
within the community that God has given us, to fight amongst one another, that an application to living a life of holiness, an indication of what that looks like is how you love your brother. <laughs> this is where it gets real. Look at this, verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, and, and I, if you've got a highlighter or a pen or pencil, I circle this, highlight it, memorize it, do whatever you know, wherever you can to put this in your heart. Here's what he says. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That word means intense consistency. Never give up on loving someone else, one another, the community that the Lord has given you, earnestly, intensely, and consistently. You know why he's saying that? Because there's going to be moments where the very people that you're called to love, you don't like them. You don't want to love them. They're hard to love. They're prickly and thorny and angry and nasty and dirty, and they say the worst things that you could imagine. There is zero caveat that God gives through Peter to these followers. He doesn't say, love them if they treat you well. Love them if they never say an unkind word to you. He's talking about is that if the church is mobilized with the truth and the passion of Jesus Christ, we are called amongst one another to be so convinced of the work of God in each of each other's lives that we could live in radical harmony. That's what grace calls us to. Grace calls us to live obediently in radical harmony with one another. doesn't mean there's not challenges and fights and difficulties, but the basis for which we interact and and communicate the love that Christ has for us and the grace that he's given us is how we love one another. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. So we're not operating out of the flesh. We're operating out of a new spiritual life. Not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is good news. The good news that we preach to you. Grace has summoned us to radical harmony. So an outcropping of what this looks like as we think about where the Lord is leading us through this journey is the reality of, of how we live differently because of the grace that's been bestowed upon us by Christ. So you've been loved, right? Through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been loved at a moment when you deserved it the least. There was not something you did that said, hey God, here's my resume, look how awesome I am. You would be lucky to have me on your team. Said no true follower of Christ. This doesn't happen. And so the point is, is that the initiation and pursuit of the work of God has been by God himself. And that that serves as the basis for how we think about loving one another. All of us have a vast amount of brokenness in the part of our story. And we've been loved by Jesus in radical and amazing ways. And it affects how we relate with one another in the world outside. Grace to live differently. There's a, a little thing that I printed out for you guys if you want it in the back as you leave, as you study First Peter. Um, and, and the commentator called it, he said, how to hold up and not fold up under pressure. <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty cool. And so he, he breaks out all of these different realities of how the book of First Peter is, uh, is structured. The first part, grace and salvation. Understanding what we've been given in Christ. The next part is grace and submission. 
What does it look like as it rolls itself out in governmental authorities and the home and all of those things? There's not a place that Peter's not going to touch and not a place that grace isn't going to have an impact. And then grace and suffering. Grace to live differently is really where the Lord is leading us through this study. We guarantee the hope. We have grace in the midst of salvation. We have strength. We've been given strength in the midst of, of difficulty and suffering. And we have grace to live in radical harmony with one another. Because that's what the Lord calls us to, to amplify the witness to the world. We've been loved so deeply that as the world churns, our one constant is Christ himself. Let's trust him. What do you say? You in? Yeah. Let's pray. Thank <laughs> you.